Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 107, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Fair game? Is a school district going too far to prevent vaping? And rural students often go unnoticed by colleges, but is there a way to fix that? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, chronic absenteeism. We talked to two professors that just wrote the book about it. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I'm great. It is early July, and that means Independence Day is just around the corner. Any big July 4th plans this year? Yes, uh, we are. This is really lame, (laughs) but in my neighborhood, we are a lot of fun, okay? Just let me start with that. And last year, we did this beach ball competition in the neighbor's pool. Um, All of our kids and us, uh, we all got in there and tried to see how long you can keep the beach ball up without it touching down on the water, you know, like you're kind of tossing it. You you can only hit it and you can't double hit. Like like Guinness World Records is coming out, like that type of thing? Yeah, and so you can't double hit, but you, you hit and hit and hit around and the you know if it goes out of the pool you have to start back over but we tried to get to 400 last year on the fourth it was the quest for 400 on the fourth so this year we are doing the quest for 500 on the fifth wow wait took on the fifth all not day. the fourth right but the fifth is a friday so that's good right so it took us all day last year to get it but we got it and it was a very i, I bet you there were some sunburns there it, yes and it was a very dramatic finish i mean like total agony like people and i'm sure you guys are getting more and more wasted as the day goes on too so <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about nick yeah <laughs> well it, it's funny because like you know i did you and i don't talk about like what i'm gonna ask you about at the top of the show like i always come out of left field with these things and um are you saying you knew i was gonna talk about this no i'm oh. saying that you actually had something to say about it is oh. what's funny like this is your life like yeah. you, you guys are um <laughs> You guys do have a tight-knit uh, neighborhood We're funny people. Crew. We're all really... We, we like to call our neighborhood the fence. And so we, we talk about, you know, hey, it's in the fence. Hey, what happens in the fence stays in the fence. And so We're kind of on the fence about your... It's really funny. Like, we had someone leave the... The fence, oh, like no. move so away. You guys like clickish. Oh, well, no, okay. no, he he moved. He, he was actually a college kid that we had. We kind of like took him in. So it was really funny because he stuck with all these old people. But yeah, we kind of fed him and took him in, and he loved us. And we, he was hilarious. But anyway, he moved on to go to medical school to really start his life. And so what's that about? We have a like group chat that we have called the fence. And so he was like joking about how, you know, gosh, when I move away from here, it's I'm just going to be so out of touch and, you know, but at least I'll still be on the group chat and I'll know what's going on. And, you know, I made a joke like, no, you're no. As soon as you move out of the fence, you're out of the group chat. Like, so did y'all about? kick him out of the. And so it was the day we did this big going away thing for him and this big party. He got all emotional. We all gave him little gifts of things to remember us by. And then, you and then the, the next group. day we started a little chat and he like chimed in and then we removed him from the fence. Uh, <laughs> just, the, like, just for the last. Just for the last. We yeah. added him back in, but he yeah. was like totally shook. 
<laughs> that's that's really funny. That's because we're old and mean. And yeah. he's just like young and like, what, guys, what? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so funny. <laughs> How long did you like leave it? Hanging out there. Did you I like, think I think we we oh, knew he was with his girlfriend too. So okay. she she got to tell us his reaction, and she was yeah. just like he was so upset. <laughs> but then we added him back in. He was like, "Y'all are the worst." <laughs> that's, that's a good story. <laughs> All right, what else do you know? What else is going on in the uh, teachers' lounge this summer? Oh my gosh, vaping is such an issue, Nick. It is. It's it is, an issue. It is an issue. And I, and I think I know what you're about to say, and I don't know if I agree with it. I know. I actually but, am already rolling my eyes at you, okay? Okay. Because I know that we don't agree on this issue, but and whatever. I, I hate vaping. Take it to I, the Supreme Court, okay? okay. Yeah. That's 2002. What, that's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Nick does, Nick does not know how he feels about random drug testing in schools. Number one, sometimes Nick is a little leery. Is it truly random? So he's he's kind of like, well, wait, what if they just want to stick it to this kid and they just keep calling the same kid um, to be drug tested? But anyway, there is, you know, since 2002, the Supreme Court says that you can randomly drug test your students that are involved in school activities. And these activities are not just sports related activities. That is part of the ruling, obviously, is that you can test for illegal substances. I don't want to get off the rails, but but why is it just those that are involved in school activities? Like, why is that the line? I guess because you're doing something extracurricular. And so, therefore, in order to be a part of this group and this esteemed group of individuals that are competing or representing the school yeah. in these competitions and whatever, then then you are subject well, to drug screening. We need to start drug screening the fence is what we need to oh, do. Oh, well, bring it. <laughs> so, but like even like debate team, show choir, cheerleaders, you know, band, um, of course, soccer, baseball, basketball, football. So it, it could be club. anything. Chess club, right. right. So Not that there's anything wrong with chess club. So, and, and it states illegal substances and it is illegal for nicotine, you know, for cigarettes, that is legal if you're, under the age of 18, you're not supposed to have it. So um, they, people are cracking down on vaping. And, of course, there's concern at the, the, that it's, you know, they're the size of USBs and it's a huge problem in classes. Like oh, teachers, yeah. you yeah. know, the kids are hiding you. it and doing it in class. It's like class. in their palms and they're like, I'll try to be cool about it. Mm-hmm. So Nebraska, cool. small little Nebraska school district is going out with a bang saying, we're going to start Screening for that, for too. For nicotine. Mm-hmm, for nicotine. So students in grades 7 through 12, when they are randomly called for drug testing, it is going to screen for nicotine, too. And um, and they, they will be cut kept out of things like National Honor Society. They're given three chances, I think. I think that, like, at first, you know, they're screened, and then... But if, I mean, they're given a warning or whatever, but then after the third time, they're out. They're out. They're out of the okay. sport. They're out of whatever. H- how did we... There was a time in the 70s and maybe even the early 80s where like people would smoke cigarettes in the school bathroom, like, right? I've seen the movies, right? <laughs> I don't but know. I never saw anybody I, I never smoke saw, in my well, bathroom. Well, and that's my point. I never <laughs> saw anyone smoke in my school bathroom either. So, but apparently it would happen all the time, according to parents and in-laws and people that have told me like, oh, yeah, we used to smoke in the bathroom all the time. So like what changed? Like you and I who grew up, we were at the smoking age in the 90s. We didn't really see that. But now with vaping, like it's back and it's back with a bang. It is. So, so like what, like what was the, the thing that caused our generation 
to not be so hooked on it that they were doing it. Now, I saw had friends smoking in the parking lot. As soon as they hopped in their car, they'd start smoking. But no one would try to smoke in school at my school. So, like, what changed? Well, I think, well, I think um, because, number one, there was awareness about the harmful side effects mm-hmm. of cigarette smoke and secondhand smoke. And schools across the nation started to have zero tolerance and posted signs that we are in, you know, but a they tobacco never free though. campus and right. you can be expelled if you're caught with that paraphernalia on you. And so I guess that's what it started to really deter it. But see, now this vaping thing is this whole new thing. And these kids say, well, it's not the same as cigarettes. It's not, it's not this, it's not that, you know. So they feel like it's completely legal for them. And then they're in these small little USB type things or pins and, that to, or keychains to where they can, it looks like a part of their normal person. Right. And they're just getting away. It's smokeless. So they, they feel like, they what's the harm? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I just feel like, we, I'm not going to say we fixed cigarette smoking because it wasn't completely fixed, but, you know, with a campaign about the harmful effects, which I think there's some new studies coming out talking about there are harmful effects from vaping. Yep. Um, in fact, I think it was a principal friend of mine out of Virginia that posted uh, a study this week. Um, and combine that with, like you said, no zero tolerance. I would be better off or, or happier with a zero tolerance. Like you get caught with this, you're out type thing than I would with a an invasion of privacy, like screening randomly. I don't know. I just feel like catch me with it. I'm in trouble and I'm in big trouble, but don't just like randomly make me pee in a cup. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like that. Well, they're already randomly making kids pee in cups. So that's already been happening since 2002. Right. So this is just one more thing they're screening for when you pee in that cup. The, um, that's, that's, that's that. But, um, <laughs> but basically, you know, they're saying that they're trying to deter it, that there's a lot of peer pressure yeah. and that there's, there's not a stigma attached to vaping and they want there to be a stigma yeah. attached to it. And they're trying to make that happen. The school yeah. district says, hey, we don't care. We're doing all we can. This is Fairbury. Um, junior and senior high in Nebraska, Nebraska. that is what, what taking a you step. Fairbury. Fairbury? Yeah. Fairbury? I mean, it's like, like fair, fair Bury. Two words? One word. Okay. But it's just, it's hard to say. Okay. Fairbury. Yeah, it's hard to say that three times fast. <laughs> and it's Fairbury. certainly hard to make a normal face Fair, when you say Fairbury. it. Yeah. Fairbury. Yeah. Anyway, in, the, in Nebraska, they're the ones that are stepping out. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess we'll see what happens. I'm curious to see if that happens in more districts around the country. I feel like it it's a little too far. But I mean, I, I agree. Vaping's awful and, and it's out of control. So I guess they're trying something. Yeah, I mean, for that. like this this article that I read was saying 3.6 million middle schoolers and high schoolers vaped in 2018. Like that's a lot of people vaping. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like right. I can, I mean, I remember somebody having me try a cigarette in high school and I remember being like, oh my gosh, this is what I saw on the after school special. And now here right. it is. It's not a man in a trench coat that's asking me to do this. It's my best friend. Yeah. And so it was, I was really like panicked. And I remember trying the cigarette, thinking it was disgusting. It made me nauseous. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's just something I'm not going to do again. But vaping is something completely different. It, it, it doesn't make you necessarily feel nauseous. It doesn't have that terrible smell. And, and it doesn't have this, terrible stigma about it they all seem to think that they're completely within their rights to be doing it that's yeah. part of the problem is i think even the school districts are saying no like no even if your parents aren't cracking down on this we're gonna right 
Well, um, I was reading through um, the Heckinger report the other day, and I found something that I didn't realize was such an issue. I mean, I guess logically it is, but it had never really crossed my mind. And it was about um, rural high schools and um, how many of the students who are great students there are not being noticed by universities. And a lot of that has to do with just like an inadequate or a non-existent counselor system in some of these really small schools. Um, I mean, we're kind of right above, we're above the area of what I would call rural. In fact, I think in this article, they define it in like cities that have 25,000 or fewer people. Um, you know, we're in a, the greater metropolitan area that we're in is closer to a hundred thousand, I think, um, in wow. the, in the city's about 50,000. So, um, I don't know that you've necessarily seen this at, um, the school you're at now, but I know you used to teach at a, some smaller schools. I mean, did you did you find that maybe some of these students weren't being recognized, or have you heard of this happening? Well, it's it's definitely an issue of they didn't know what to do, and there are deadlines for certain things when you're applying for colleges and scholarships, and if you don't know about them in time to meet those deadlines, and you find out about it in mid to late spring, then you missed it, and so. Um, I mean, I will say this, Nick, and I, I, when I think of my high school years, there was a career center, there was a counselor. I remember her face and everything. And yeah, I remember her giving me like a little packet saying, you know, here's some things to help you get started. Here's some things you should do. Um, that doesn't happen anymore as far as I can tell. Really? With, with what my son just went through. There, and and maybe it's just because, you know, my son went to a, a high school that graduated over 400 children Mm -hmm. in his graduating class. But um, there is a shift away. I mean, there is a, there is definitely a career center. There is definitely, but uh, the role of the counselor in high schools now has to do with testing. And then also with, um, you know, students that are at risk. Well, well, let me ask you this. Okay. So like with your, your son, who's on his way to college, you know, you knew to put him in ACT prep courses Mm -hmm. and you knew to help him with his applications, but what happens to the kid at his same school who, who doesn't have Lissa as a mom, you know, who has the, the passive parent. Hopefully that child went to their counselor and said, is there anything I can do to help me apply for this, that, or the other, and they hopefully directed him towards um, a lady in the career center that said, "Well, here's some things I can give you." I mean, I know that there's. So you're you saying, know, but you're saying the school does have a career placement center. They where do. They have a place that, that you yeah. can go. But it, but what I'm saying is, what I recall is that place used to seek us out as seniors, but now it's up to you to go seek it out. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah makes and like, sense. I know that there's things now that they do for every school. Um, the FAFSA, there's a day where the school will help you fill that out. Right. As long as you bring your information to school, they will help you sit on their computers and fill it out, which is fair, um, for people that need help and guidance and filling that out. Right. Or even computer with internet access, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, I, I, I feel like sometimes you see in these larger schools are all this money has been, you know, scholarship to these high schools from these different universities and things and scholarships, but it 
It could just be that that's more kids applying from those schools. But I don't think it's that, I mean, this is just in my experience. I mean, every school district is different. But I think maybe in my experience, it was just that those students were seeking it out. It's all online. It's all there for, well, and, there is no and, gatekeeper and you're, of the you're, information. you're segueing into where I'm going with this. So apparently there's some nonprofits who are running tests, um, and they're doing this on a small scale, I should say, um, where they are doing virtual counseling with rural districts. So it's like, imagine if you had a, a nonprofit call center um, with video conferencing and you were working with these smaller districts, which I think I've got some numbers here. It's like 25% of the students in the country live in these districts, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's one fourth, right, right? right? I like the idea of like these these call centers working with students in these areas to making sure that they're enrolled in ACT prep and they're knowing how to fill out their application and they're mm-hmm. knowing how to write an essay if, if need be. Um, I just don't know if it's scalable. I and know. That's really the challenge. And honestly, even in the last few weeks, I've answered so many questions of moms whose children are younger than mine, but they're going to be going through this whole process in the next year. And it's just crazy the misconceptions that are out there because it is great to have a number that you can call to just ask some questions and say, like, where, mm-hmm. where do I start? Um, the the biggest thing I can say is if you do know somebody, even a mother, you know, or a father or a student that that went to that university that your child is wanting to go to, that went through that process, yeah. to ask them. Because that's what I did. I asked, and it helped that my son already knew where he wanted to attend, and he already knew his degree plan. So I could see where... Gosh, I can't even imagine, honestly, if my son was wanting to apply to three or four different universities, I don't know that I that we could have done it because we both worked really hard on that. And he really it's not like I did it for him. He absolutely was a huge, huge part of it. And it was just for one university. And and then of course extra different scholarships that either surround that university or surround our community. And it's hard to know what's available. You have to ask and ask and ask. And that's what I found to be, you know, there are times like where universities come and visit the mm-hmm. the school. Yeah. Um, but what I would say, and, and these, and it, and it is great that the universities do that, but you need to be sending your juniors when that, when those people come. Right. But what happens is the seniors go by and say, oh yeah, I'm coming. I've already filled out the stuff and blah, blah, blah. But they're not, they don't need the information. It's the juniors that need the information. I recall applying for college and scholarships and stuff in the spring of my senior year. That's what I recall. But that is not the case now. I mean, you need to already know where you're going. Mm -hmm. Some of these schools, like right now, this summer, it's always so crazy at the art studio because we do have older kids that are in and out that are that are going to be seniors. So they're, they're going to be seniors in high school and they're already freaking out because the deadline for the dorm room for their freshman year, a whole smooth year from now or more away, that deadline is this summer and you know, they've got to get their thing in and then they sit up in the middle of the night and see if they got into this dorm that they wanted. So that means they've already applied to that university and then they've applied for housing and they haven't even started their senior year. So it's, you know, I, I think it's a jungle. It is. And I think it's great if whoever is doing the virtual kind of counseling to help because it is it's so different. If you're thinking it's the way it was when you were younger, 
No, you're right. It's not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. No- in fact, I'm going to try to see if I can't get one, someone from this nonprofit like on the show because I think it would be interesting to kind of hear like what they're doing and is it scalable? Like, can they can they really do a call center with a thousand counselors in it who are hitting you know rural districts from all over the country? Is that even a thought or is it like how do we pull this off? Yeah, and even yeah. we did an episode once on um, digital portfolios. Right. Hey guys, that's no joke. Like that's mm-hmm. real life right there. Like if right. you have a child that's going to college and they're applying for scholarships competitively, you're going to need to have one of those. And right. there's different platforms out there to help you. And certain universities only use certain platforms, so you you might have to have several different ones with the same content but different platforms. And so it's. It's a lot. You need to go back to find that episode on the digital portfolios, too, because that was helpful. I remember taking notes during that episode, and that's when my son was a junior. Right. Well, are you ready for the bright idea? Yes. We are talking about um, chronic absenteeism. We actually have the gentleman, two of them, who who wrote the book on chronic absenteeism. So stay tuned. Our guests in today's Bright Idea segment are the authors of Absent from School, Understanding and Addressing Student Absenteeism. Michael Gottfried is a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Ethan Hutt is a professor at the University of North Carolina. Their book was written to help educators and policymakers understand the impact and causes of chronic student absenteeism. Gentlemen, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for having us. This is a topic that... Um, for me, you know, you hear about all the time and I know every district probably in the country is paying attention to it. But if I understand from your book, no one's really done a, a true comprehensive dive in looking at the data behind chronic absenteeism and compiled it all together really until now. Am, am I correct about that? Yeah, that was definitely one of the goals. So there's been, there's been a sizable amount of work on the research on absenteeism, but it's all been happening in isolation from one another. So you have economists studying it, you have psychologists studying it and so forth. But this book really brought together people from multiple disciplines and uh, different backgrounds in terms of methodology to try to put together a unified uh, message on absenteeism. Now, I did not dive into the uh, specific titles and um, which college at your respective university each of you all work at, but, but tell me a little bit about your professional background and how you ended up diving into this topic and why you decided to dive into it? Um, So my professional background is I'm an economist by training, though I'm in the Graduate School of Education at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I come from this from, understandably, an econ background, thinking about the factors that go into, quote unquote, producing good student outcomes. And back when I was doing my dissertation a while ago, I was thinking about the fact that no one's studying absenteeism. And this really struck me when I was speaking to a teacher in Philadelphia, the city I did my grad school work in. And she said to me, you guys can talk about curriculum and computers and textbooks, but if the kids aren't in their seats, then all of that is useless. And so I thought to myself, like, that's a really interesting point and a good one that a key factor in other things working in schools is that the kids are actually there to reap the benefits of being in school. So I, I was I think about it as that as a factor of production as an input as an input factor That's to lots of kid outputs. E- Ethan, what about you? So I, I come at it a, a bit differently, and it's I think why why the book is interesting because we we approach it from very different perspectives. I'm I'm a historian by training, and my work primarily focuses on looking at the development of the the metrics the the 
the tools, you know, mostly quantitative that we use to monitor and measure and decide how schools are doing. So I've done work on the history of grading and the history of standardized testing, um, measures that we use to measure teacher quality. And so I saw that uh, a conversation around attendance was was coming back into sort of the public view. It struck me as really interesting because some of the very first conversations about school metrics that happened in the in America in the 19th century and sort of Horace Mann's time, you know, the 1840s and so, are about uh, school attendance. And I guess when we're talking about absenteeism, I mean, we're, we're specifically talking about chronic absenteeism. Is that correct? And and how would you define chronic absenteeism? I mean, one of the findings that that uh, gets presented in the book is that. Um, any absence, uh, regardless of how good uh, a student um, is missing school, you know that absence has a uh, a measurable effect on that student's performance. So some students who are really good miss less school, and it affects them less because they're already very high achieving. But uh, it's a mistake to think, and I think parents often make this mistake of thinking, "Well, my kid's a really good student." Uh, if they miss a couple of days, it doesn't really matter. Um, and we find uh, in the data that it actually does. You can see the, the effect of those absences regardless of, of the student. But the reason that we're focused on chronic absenteeism is because, uh, well, a bunch of reasons. But but one primary reason is that the new uh, federal law, the uh, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act, um, gave states the opportunity to include an additional accountability measure. And about 38 states chose chronic absenteeism as their sort of flex measure, their optional measure. And so there's been a huge amount of focus uh, from states, and states are asking local districts to um, focus on chronic absenteeism and to focus on um, how uh, developing plans for, for, for addressing that issue. And so what are the, the top two causes, if, if or maybe even more, or maybe even just the number one cause? Like, is there one thing that, that you're, you're seeing come up again and again that is a cause of chronic absenteeism? So that's a, that's a good question. So I think it depends also on the age of the students that we're talking about. So in my own work beyond this book, I study a lot um, of kids in early childhood, so kindergarten, first grade, preschool. And so at that age... Two of the causes I would say would be routines and routines and logistics. So routines being things like can parents get their kids to school every morning, especially when we're talking about kindergarten, that this is the first time that kids are going to school each and every day. And logistics being things like can parents afford to send their kids to school if they take the bus? Um, Can they pack lunches every day for the kids? So and when we when we talk um, about older kids, you know, it might come up to things like educational disengagement. Um, although I don't, I don't necessarily study older kids in my own research, so I don't want to say things that are not necessarily true. But for the younger kids, we're really talking about routines and logistics. And of course, uh, things like health. After doing all of your research, um, who, did, who do you think can make a bigger impact to fix this? Is it policymakers, lawmakers, or is it going to the superintendents and the teachers and the educators? I think, and this speaks to a couple of chapters and conclusions in the book, I think we need all of them equally. So I think that we need policymakers to help set policies doing things like ESSA, where for the first time in in our nation's history, we have the federal government um, inducing schools to be held accountable, inducing states to induce schools to be held accountable 
for um, absenteeism. But as, as the book talks about, we also need district and school and teacher buy-in, right? So if we don't have a culture of wanting to address this, if we don't have a culture of wanting to look at data and seeing absenteeism rates among teachers and principals, then the policies aren't going to matter. So I think, I think um, we need all, all parties to be involved. So saying that, um, and I don't want to obviously give away the whole book. You got you got to read it, and there's a lot of there's a lot of detail in there. I mean, and you guys also point out, I think you know right out the gate that there's a lot of gray area as well. So there's really no silver bullet. But let's let's try and and just kind of talk about a, a few policies that um, maybe are currently working to improve absenteeism. Like what comes to mind? What what are school districts doing where you say that helps? There's a lot of work looking at low-cost informational interventions. And so what I mean by that is um, in the book, we look at text messaging. So schools have implemented programs and policies to text message parents, asking things like, is your kid in school? Why isn't your kid in school? How can we help get your kid in school more? So we're not talking about high-cost programs within schools. You know, a lot of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but a lot of programs, particularly when it comes to curriculum, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement in school districts and then a certain thousand, two thousand dollar per pupil expenditure. But here we're talking about text messaging, which is which is much cheaper and much more replicable. Well and, and so let's dive into text messaging just a little bit. Do you think a, a text message that's automated because your child didn't show up in school is effective, or do you think it needs to be a step further and it needs to be, you know, an actual conversation between the teacher and the parent saying, Hey, you know, just checking on on little Bobby. Is he okay? He wasn't in school today. Yep. So I think that um both are helpful. And in the book, um, there's a discussion on how the text messaging program was uh human to human. So it wasn't computer to parent, but it was someone at the school end who is talking with the parent by text. And so there is someone at each school who would be a support staff to help troubleshoot and problem solve. So I agree. I, I think that step, step one would be just information out there. Your kid's not in school. Here's the problems with your kids missing so much school. But I think step two is definitely a support um, system for parents, which can also be done by text. And the researchers did find that that was really successful is to have, you know, a human, I guess a human not voice on the other side of the phone on the other side of the text message. Ethan, what about you? Did you want to chime in on anything that's, that's working well right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I we should probably let Michael cause it's his research, but you know, I mean, there, there are simple things like, you know, we know that for example, that if you take the bus to school, you're more likely to uh, be at school than if you don't. And that might be a little counterintuitive. Um, but you know, Michael referenced it before that often what we find is that routines are really important and that um, often schools have a part to play in helping families uh, develop routines that are effective or that work for them. And so uh, those kinds of things where, you know, one of the things that we that we report in the book is that um, when students transition between schools, so into kindergarten or into uh, sixth grade, again, into ninth grade, that's where we see sort of big uh, drop-offs in attendance. Uh, granted that there are different sort of high schoolers are in general are less likely to be in attendance than elementary school kids. But even still, you see these sort of drop-offs. And one of the things they think is going on there is, you know, you have a new school, you have a new routine that's being um, uh, demanded of the family. And so in particular, 
schools that are effective at communicating with incoming parents and incoming families about, you know, the importance of, of coming to school, about the importance of, of um, developing routines that ensure that students are there on time. Uh, I mean, another intervention that we that we um, that there is research that suggests works is that you know you have um, uh, lunch or sorry breakfast in, in in first period, so not before school, but in first period, and that way students know that they get to school on time and in time for first period, they can have their breakfast, and that that can set them up for both you know a positive learning day, but also can improve attendance. And so you know thinking about those kinds of just scheduling interventions. Did you discover anything that really you haven't seen districts doing, but but could be really effective in improving absenteeism? I have, but not. we don't talk about it in the book, but it actually relates to other work that Ethan and I are conducting along with my PhD student, Jacob Kirksey. We're actually looking at teacher professional development, or I should say teacher education. And we have a paper that's coming out in Teachers College Record that asked are new teachers being prepared to address the absenteeism crisis? And really, there's not a lot of work that's focusing on our teachers being prepared, our current or experienced teacher being prepared, and what kind of teachers are better at addressing absenteeism. So I think this is a huge gap in the field and one that Ethan, Jacob, and I are starting to address. And I think this is something that teacher education programs at universities should be addressing and also districts should be thinking about how do we best prepare teachers? Because when, at the end of the day, if you think about it, the truth is that kids are not just in schools, they're in classrooms, right? And so I can see a lot of this accountability coming down to the teacher. And so we should be equipping these teachers with the right tools, right? So when we've talked about the text messaging program or the school bus, none of this really is directly related to the teacher. So I think this is something that's definitely a big void in the research and policy field right now. Can you give me a takeaway there? I mean, what what skills should a teacher have to, to address it? That is, that is a great question. Um, so in the work that we've done, we've looked specifically at teachers who are just graduating from the university programs. And so we looked at, do you even have knowledge of, of absence policy? Do you know what chronic absenteeism is? Um, when do you feel like you have more skills and training to address these issues. So we didn't actually look in the classroom yet. That's to be determined. We're actually following up with the teachers this summer, a year after they graduated to see what what they've used in the classroom. So we'll have to stay tuned for part two of the podcast. Um, Michael, I know you had an opportunity. Um, I was checking your, your Twitter account and you had an opportunity to meet with um, Senator Harris, right? Who's running for president. Yes. Uh, Yes, we, uh, Ethan and I were both at the meeting with uh, one of her senior senior fellows on absenteeism. Gotcha. And and so when you had that meeting, if you don't mind me asking, like, what was your their, your message to them? What were you trying to get them to do in terms of policy? Well, we handed them a copy of the book. That was the first thing that everyone in the Senate needs to read. That no, the the takeaway I think for them, um, and I had worked with Senator Harris back when she was Attorney General of California. They're looking for policies that are scalable and replicable. So they're not interested in these one-off policies that works really well in Los Angeles, but has no chance of surviving in Oakland. They're looking for things that could be a takeaway for districts. And well, Senator Harris is interested in California and as president should be interested in the United States. So we're looking for things that are equally as possible to do in Rhode Island as in California. So I think that that is a takeaway for them for sure, that 
could this work everywhere and how cost effective is it to implement something like program X? I think the key, the sort of next big step is we know that there are a lot of pieces that work. We know certain programs work in certain contexts, but you know, we don't have a lot of research on how these programs might fit together and maybe have, you know, sort of amplifying effects. So, you know, what would happen if, you know, you, you know, had breakfast in the classroom and you were text messaging and you made sure that everyone had, you know, access to a a school bus or reliable transportation to school, you know, sort of what's the cumulative total effect? Uh, You know, we don't really have a lot of research on that because the sort of as as a matter of policy, uh, or accountability policy, this focus is is relatively new. The other thing that we wanted to um, communicate to Senator Harris and to sort of other people is, while we think it's a really positive development that we're focusing on chronic absenteeism, we have to be really careful that we um, don't pretend to know more than we do about um, how to make this an effective accountability measure. So one of the challenging parts of accountability, uh, sorry, one of the challenging parts about chronic absenteeism as an accountability measure is that unlike a lot of accountability measures that we've used in the past, like, um, you know, student grade level learning or student competency levels is, you know, when you're saying, well, you know, should every child graduate or should every child read at grade level, the obvious answer of what is the, what is the optimal percentage that all districts should be rooting for should be pulling for it's obviously 100%. We want all students to graduate, we want all students to be reading at grade level. But when you tell districts or tell individual schools, you know, we want you to improve your attendance rates, it's not obvious what the optimal attendance rate is for any given school. And so you don't want to we don't want to invite the kind of gaming or cheating on on attendance measures. Um, just to give one example, we had a scandal in DC um, uh, last year or maybe two years ago now where, you know, a, a school was reporting that everyone uh, in the high school had graduated and the local NPR station began to look into it and found that basically a lot of attendance records, I think everything, every only two school, only two high schools in the district were not uh, in some way engaging in some fudging around attendance records. And so that would be a really, really bad outcome if, if the focus on attendance ends up leading to, to gaming. And so part of the message is this stuff works, we should focus on it, but we should also take it, take it slow. Well, uh, again, the book is Absent from School. Uh, we're speaking with Michael Gottfried and Ethan Hutt. Uh, gentlemen, I, I really appreciate you talking about this uh, important topic with us. Are you guys uh, ready for the uh, pop quiz? I think so. <laughs> all right. And I'll, you each get a crack at these questions, all right? So you don't have to, to pass them around. So uh, first question, if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, I'd have to say they have to go to they have to uh, they have to learn their history. You know, everything is uh, everything. Everything new is was old once. So they have to they have to study history first. <laughs> uh, I was actually going to say reading slash English, which is odd coming from an economist. I was you should think I was going to say math, but I think that we need to keep bumping literacy. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's actually, it's related to math and, and literacy. I think, uh, financial literacy, 
could be better. And I, I just saw a news story on this that we need to really up our financial literacy. And I think that maybe we can get started on that earlier than than adulthood. And I would love to see schools sort of, you know, lean into to controversy and, and try to make schools the kind of place where you can have, you know, a healthy exchange of ideas that doesn't get um, sort of preemptively squashed out of either fear or, or sort of public outcry. And I would love to, to sort of give students, uh, especially young students, opportunities and tools to have those kinds of difficult conversations in the safe setting of a school uh, before they sort of, you know, get older and have to do it at a, at a college level or as, you know, as, as American voters. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves a high quality, free public education. That was also going to be my answer. Biggest challenge for today's educators. Um, I think there's a, there's, you know, the classrooms are diversifying in so many ways in terms of special education inclusion, in terms of immigration and so forth. That I think that we need to think about how can we, how can we equip our educators to address the needs of all diverse learners in a single classroom? Yeah, I, I have a, a similar answer, which is that, you know, the, the biggest thing is that we ask our schools to do so many different things. Uh, it's it's almost the least that schools do is is educate kids. And we, we ask them to do so much more in terms of providing food service and emotional support and psychological help and health care. Uh, and so it's just so difficult to put the teacher kind of at the center uh, of this huge apparatus where so many social services in America go through the school and the teacher as our sort of frontline person has to sort of direct traffic on all of that. And that's a tremendous, tremendous ask for, for anyone. Uh, and then they're also asked to, to, you know, make sure that students can read at grade level and do math at grade level. So that, that's a big, that's a big challenge. What's the best gift to give an educator? A, a day at the spa is, uh, is, is what I think my sister would say. She's a second grade teacher. I was thinking a, a gift card to, to like an office supplies store, a large one, so they don't have to feel the pressure of having to take from their own salaries to support their classrooms. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, man. Well, I, he's on he's on my mind because he passed away recently. But uh, my I had a, a track coach slash hi, slash history professor or history teacher uh, Patrick Katie, who is my eleventh grade AP U.S. history teacher, and you know he was the first person who who gave me a sort of an academic history text, you know, by written by a professional historian that was making sort of arguments for other historians and. It really just sort of changed the way I thought about a subject that I thought I really knew well and loved history, and that was a that was a really important moment uh, uh, for for me and my sort of intellectual development. Was was uh, he gave me um, uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg by Gary Wills, and that was a it's a phenomenal book, and it just sort of changed the way that I that I was thinking about stuff. So I have to give give him a shout out, though all my teachers were, were really great. I was very lucky in that respect, but. Uh, Patrick Katie was 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 really special. That gave me time to think about my answers. So mine is my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Ebner. And the reason is, is that she was an avid traveler. And that is my hobby as well. And I just remember being in fifth grade and her coming back from her trip to East Berlin, back when it was East Berlin, and showing pictures of like the apartment buildings and the cars and how everything looks so different from her same trip to West Berlin and thinking like, wow, there's a lot of the world 
that is so different. And I want to see it all. And last question, pen or pencil? Uh, well, it's definitely pencil because um, you're not allowed to take pens into archives. For me, a pen, a multicolored pen. All right. Again, uh, Michael Gottfried and Ethan Hutt, we appreciate you guys taking the time uh, to chat with us today and keep up all the great work. Thanks so much for having us. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.